بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الله صل على سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وبارك وسلم سورة الأحزاب سورة Following the same translation I have is page 702. <laughs> These ayat, as we have been discussing, relate to the Ghazwa Khandaq, the Battle of the Ditch, where the Confederates came and they besieged Medina for quite a few days. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a sandstorm, a very severe wind and that uprooted their their tents and their base and they had to flee because there was no protection left for them. This ayah refers to that occasion. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who turned away those who disbelieved as they were preoccupied with their own rage, and that they would receive no goodness. That they would not attain any goodness, any benefit, any profit, any assistance, any PR, any kind of inroads into dismantling the edifice of the Muslims of Medina. And they were turned away and totally rejected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the resistance of the defenders of Medina. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now uh, relieved the believers, sufficed the believers in fighting. Meaning the believers didn't have to put up a physical fight except one or two duels that occurred between the Muslims and the non-Muslim champions and soldiers. Other than that, there was really no fight. There was no battlefield as such. There was very little killing that occurred in the Battle of the Ditch because Allah took care of the believers in their fight. Kafa means to take care of, to suffice, to be enough. Makan Allahu Qawiyan Aziza, Allah indeed has always been powerful and supreme, overpowering. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He wants to, He will help believers and avoiding bloodshed is always better in the eyes of the divine 
than bloodshed occurring. So although the Muslims were ready for the battle and to give their lives and sacrifice their lives, Allah did not allow that to happen because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saw the persistence, the devotion and the sincerity of the Prophet and the believers as has been mentioned in the previous ayat. So this is how Allah becomes supreme and powerful. So supremacy and power sometimes does not require brute force or violence. It can be done through other means that are much more subtle and sublime and much more effective. Although the apparent okay, scene on the ground was that Muslims were ready to fight if they needed to. وَأَنزَلَ الَّذِينَ ظَاهَرُوهُمْ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ مِنْ صِيَاصِيهِمْ وَخَذَّفَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمُ الرُّعْبَ فَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ وَتَأْسِرُونَ فَرِيقًا As hinted to previously, there was another fight after the fight where the Prophet ﷺ had entered into a political agreement with the tribes of Medina, the Banu Qaynuqa, the Banu Quraidha, Banu Nadir. These are three of the Jewish tribes that entered into a plea and a treaty, a peace treaty, and also a treaty for mutual protection. So they had agreed that they will support the Prophet against any enemy that came to launch an attack against people of the people of Medina. So the Prophet saw all the different parties in Medina to be one community, one group, one nation. And they said that we will help each other uh, where there is a mutual benefit. So just as we don't want anyone to come and hurt us, we don't want anyone to come and attack you. So if someone come came to attack you, we will protect you. Likewise, if someone comes to attack us, you will protect us. This was between all the the various tribes, the Jewish and the other tribes that were Munafiqun and obviously the Aus and the Khazraj, the two Muslim tribes of the Ansar. The Banu Quraidha, as mentioned previously, they broke this treaty and they were not there to defend the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims from the Quraysh. In fact, they went to the other side and they committed many forms of treason and treachery and even espionage on behalf of the Quraysh, which they acknowledged. So the reports are that they acknowledged this treason and then the Banu Quraydha tribe that followed the law of Moses through the Torah, uh, said to the Prophet wasallam that uh, you will uh, judge and adjudicate according to the law of the Torah, which the Prophet wasallam conceded to and said, fine. Right. So the Prophet wasallam, as he was coming home from the Battle of the Ditch, Jibreel met him uh, on the way and said, Ya Rasulullah, uh, you are still in armor. Don't take off your armor yet because the Banu Quraidha has committed immense treason and treachery against you and the Muslims. 
and uh, we want you to go and deal with them. So the Prophet ﷺ stayed in Medina and dispatched a group of Sahaba towards the Banu Quraidah. And they were told that they should not do their Asr until they reached Banu Quraidah. It's a fascinating story about how the Sahaba saw the Prophet's commandments. So one group went and uh, prayed Asr on the way because they felt Asr time would go. The other group didn't pray with them. And they prayed Asr when they reached Banu Quraidah, two different times for Asr, two different Jama'at. And nobody said that they divided the Ummah by having this fiqh and that fiqh. It's all okay. Relax. The bigger picture was, get the job done. The job being contained, Banu Quraidah, don't let them leave. They have to be now given a trial and they have to be judged. When the Muslims did go there and captured the forts of the Banu Quraidah, which is mentioned here, yeah, they, appoint, they appointed Sa'ad bin Wa'ad to be their chief arbitrator. The Prophet sent Sa'ad bin Wa'ad because he spoke their language, he knew their people, he knew who was who in the tribe. And then they said that this is the... the uh, punishment for treason in the Torah and this is how you're going to now treat us also because we are guilty of this. So this came from their side the Banu Quraylah. So the Prophet executed those who were guilty and then took away those who were not guilty under his protection back to Medina albeit as slaves but they were under the protection when people take others as slaves in the battlefield, it is uh, usually under the rubric of pres- preserving their human dignity and uh, saving them from further uh, repercussions and uh, further vile acts of violence because in the state of war, the enemy will always remain the enemy. But if you defend uh, the prisoners of war saying, this one belongs to me, no one would dare touch that person. So you saved people from further violence. This is the hikmah of that. Mm. Otherwise, if you left them there and you put them into prison camps or you put them behind bars or somewhere, invariably people will come and finish the job, so to speak. Right? That's just how human beings are. That this person is a deserter, a traitor, or this person wanted to see us dead and so on. Anyway, that's the legal issue more than the political issue. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet and the Muslims now booty from the Banu Quraidah and allowed them to now be the patrons of these people who were not executed. This is what this ayah is saying. وَأَنزَلَ الَّذِينَ ظَاهَرُوهُمْ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought those down from their very ramparts. الَّذِينَ ظَاهْرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ مِنْ صِيَاصِيهِمْ From their ramparts. From their high buildings and from wherever they were hiding. And, and who were guilty of treason supported the federate uh, clans. Meaning that they were ظَاهْرُوهُمْ mean He's trying to translate the word ظَاهْرُوهُمْ that they openly rebelled against the Prophet 
and the other communities of Medina. That's the meaning of Mudahara. That they, they demonstrated their treason in this way. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hurled horror and fright into their hearts that they were intimidated by the idea that now the Muslims will come and totally annihilate them for their treason, which the Prophet minimized. He minimized the repercussions based on their scripture, on their law, not on what Muslims perhaps might have wanted to do. So the fear, the ru'ab, the intimidation, uh, was now thrown into their hearts, and this is what the Prophet ﷺ said about himself, نُصِرْتُ بِالرُّعْبَ that I have been assisted in my war, in my wars and my battles with this ru'ab, this fear, this intimidation, and masir of the shah. Sometimes for even before a month, the enemy would arrive to fight us. فَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ وَتَأْسِرُونَ فَرِيقًا So some of them, Allah says, you killed, and some of them you captured. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that the, the, the behavior of the Prophet was to minimize any additional extra unnecessary violence. And the only way to do that was through the legal code which the Torah had given the, this Jewish tribe. And that's how they were now dealt with and that's how they were executed. So they were executed justly as criminals of war, not as prisoners of war. Okay? The prisoners came back to Medina. They were never executed. These people were executed because they were guilty of treason, which they admitted to. And uh, anyway, we've said some more uh, things about this in the past, but it's, it's what the Quran is saying. This is part of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. This did happen. You don't need to apologize for it because they're in the Quran. Why do you need to apologize for something that's in the Quran and something that's there written in the seerah? What you need to do is give it a framework. The framework is this happens with any community, any nation that comes into an agreement with others and if they break the treaty, there will be repercussions. That's just a sign of might and power and authority that you don't allow people to now stab you in the back. Otherwise, you will fall and you will be dismantled very, very quickly if you allow that to happen. This is self-defense. This is not an offensive act by the Prophet It was a defensive act. If you were there, then we would not touch you. We didn't need to touch you. وَتَأْسِرُونَ فَرِقَةً وَأَرَّثَكُمْ أَرْضَهُمْ وَدِيَارَهُمْ وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ وَأَرْضًا لَمْ تَطْعُوهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ الشَّيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives glad tidings to the Prophet here immediately after the, uh, the Khandakh uh, issue or the event as I mentioned before that the Prophet while he was breaking the rock that the, uh, the dust came out from each strike and he saw that the keys of the Persian and the Roman and the Yemeni kingdoms were given to him and the Sahaba and he told the Sahaba this was going to happen. So as a confirmation of that vision 
of the Prophet ﷺ, we have this ayah, ayah number 27, just to show that the hadith now is in line with the Qur'an. And if you read that in the seerah, and if you had a doubt, you say, why would this happen? Allah then gives a proof for that vision here. The Qur'an hadith, they're both, they're both wahi. They're both sources of knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Qur'an here endorses the vision of the Prophet sallallahu which is recorded in the seerah, in the books of hadith, and so on. So here Allah says that he has bequeathed you your, to you their land. Meaning in future the land of these people from the Ahl Kitab will be given to you. And this is a reference to Khaybar, which came later, as you know, to the north of Medina. وَدِيَارُهُمْ And also their dwellings, their homes will be given to you. وَأَمْوَالُهُمْ And their wealth will be given to you. And then further after that, outside of the Jazeera, outside of the peninsula, Allah says that He will also bequeath you, give you as inheritance land that you have never trodden before. You haven't even now gone there to those places. Allah has given this glad tiding to the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba before it happens. So this is a prophecy of the Qur'an to the Muslims that after Muhammad ﷺ goes and leaves this world, you will inherit many portions of God's earth. The key word here is the first word in the ayah, وَأَوْرَثَكُمْ أَوْرَثَكُمْ is from the word waritha, waratha, to give as inheritance. Waratha as you know is inheritance. Awratha means to give somebody else as inheritance. So now the, the whole theology behind owning land and owning, you know, uh, what do you call it, territory, is now mentioned here. It might sound something similar to the, the imperial model of invading countries, right? That the, even the colonials had a theological uh, premise and a motivation to go out and colonize the whole earth and that's how they justified their, their colonization and so on, the Spaniards and the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch and obviously the British, right? The imperialists, the imperialist kind of ideology was, was, was fired up by their theology. That makes sense. You know? yeah. So if you have theology behind your, your, your theory of invading other countries, whether it's for defense or offense, then you can get away with it, basically, in the eyes of people. So in the, in the Christian world, the, the king or the monarch was seen as a direct representative of God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas in ours, it was the Khalifa who was a representative of the Prophet sallallahu So it's a human-based theology, not a God-based theology for the Muslims. Somewhat lower, less idealistic and as less divine for the Muslims as it is for the Christians. But anyway, here the, the, the word, the theory is, Allah in the Ardullahi 
that the earth and the land belongs to Allah. He gives it as inheritance to whomever he wishes to. Right? Meaning the earth belongs to Allah. Allah created the earth and everything Allah creates is his. Now, there are two ways to justify uh, inheritance. One is that you do it uh, in a kind of honorable way and a somewhat of a legal way within your legal system. And the other is that you snatch people's land and you usurp it and you confiscate it. There are two ways. Here Allah says this was the way that Allah chose for you. That because they were guilty of treason and because there was no one there to take care of the land of the Banu Khurayla, Allah gave that land to you as inheritance so that you could take care of the land. Because inheritance means what? Somebody leaves and you inherit. That makes sense? You're going to inherit when? When someone leaves or dies. That he is, the son will inherit from the father not in the father's lifetime. Only when the father dies will the son inherit. So the word awratha, I mean Allah gave you his inheritance, means that as Banu Quraidha left, Allah gave you that land. So you inherited after Banu Quraidha left it. Meaning their ownership now had, uh, had uh, discontinued and the ownership of their land came to you. This is now a good way to own other people's land. Is through the divine process of allowing people to inherit each other's land. And the other way is that you have a very aggressive, offensive campaign where you uh, kill everybody and then you say uh, that you are going to inherit as usurpers. Mm. Yeah. But it's a theory that requires much more attention than we can offer it here in this ayah because that's not the purpose of the ayah. The purpose of the ayah is to show Allah's favor and fadl on the Sahaba that as a result of their dedication and commitment after remaining hungry for over a week uh, while digging the ditch and defending the frontier of Medina against those people who came to attack them Allah subhanahu says that this is now ghanima this is booty not as a result that you wanted it but as a result of someone else's inability to fulfill their covenant and to keep the treaties that they said they would. In that sense, this was a waratha, the inheritance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mandated for them and gave them as a gift. That's the theology of it. Allah's, Allah owns the land, every part of it, in this world and in any other world that Allah has created. And the universe belongs to Allah. Lillahi mulku samawati and so on. So this theory is developed further in a surah which is Al-Hadid if you want to understand this theory of the divine approach towards uh, owning land your land and other people's land and how the inheritance uh, theology is brought down into revelation then you have the surah, surah Al-Hadid study that and you'll see what it is I'm trying to say Anyway, so Allah gives and chooses this the other way, even though if someone takes some 
other person's land by force, okay, as we know, right, in the Middle East, one particular country has done that. Okay. So now the, the, the issue later on became as to now who owns the land legally. So there's a debate amongst Muslim scholars whether or not they can claim it's theirs or they can't claim it's theirs and so on. And the fight there is all about who owns the land. So the, the, the Arabs say it is an Arab al the occupied land, confiscated land. And that is why people don't appreciate what they are claiming. This is occupied land, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state that controls and governs it, and therefore you, as an independent, autonomous, uh, self, uh, what do you call it, determining group of people, you don't own the land, so you don't have a flag of the United Nations, or the United Nations will not say that it is uh, rightly yours. Political discussions. <laughs> it's all from the theory of inheriting land. So that's why it's a huge issue in the Muslim world also. But Allah says that uh, this after sacrifice, sometimes He gives you. Allah is more than capable, eternally capable of doing anything. So this is the one model that uh, certain Muslims are promoting that you trust Allah. And you make sure your actions are correct and you make sure that your dealings with the people are correct and sound and you don't break promises and you don't break treaties and all of that. It's a whole mess, as you know, in the Middle East. There's just so many, so many theories that you need to um, put into the, uh, the cooking pot <laughs> before you get your understanding. It's very complicated, very complex. It's not a simple solution. Uh, because there's no simple way to understand the confusion that has been created over the past hundred years. Here in this surah, the focus is on uh, fulfilling the covenant of uh, with the Prophet The surah is about making sure that every Muslim and every non-Muslim who is in agreement or has a treaty with the Prophet fulfills that covenant and uh, makes good on the promise. And if they do, then they are rewarded. And if they don't, then they are not rewarded. Right? This is the way the whole surah is pivoted. We will stop here, since uh, the next story requires some detail. It's It's a long story, and actually a very humorous story. Sometimes we miss the boat, and we go overboard in our trying to be too serious with some of the incidents in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ that we miss the, the trees for the wood and we don't see the humor in the story. So the next passage is about the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. So now, historically, people see it as a very serious issue where it is eventually a serious issue that it has to be seen with a certain sense of divine humor also. There's nothing wrong with saying that the divine has humor. Right? No? To know Islam is all serious. It is 90%. There's 10% leeway. There's a window there for smiling at what Allah does occasionally. Or what the Prophet does occasionally. What the Sahaba did occasionally. There's room for that. So 
You know, sometimes you have to let go of your being tense all the time. So the next story requires some detail before you appreciate the humor. And that's why we will discontinue and stop here for this uh, session. Just to recap the, the story of the Prophet from the beginning of the surah that Allah's Fatah, which is mentioned at the end of Surah Al-Sajdah, وَيَقُولُونَ مَتَى هَذَا الْفَتْحِ When will this Fatah and when will this now victory come? If you are truthful, so Allah responds with Surah Al-Hazab immediately and saying the, uh, the victory and the triumph only comes when you fulfill your covenants. Right? And you make sure that you don't do anything that contradicts the institution of prophethood. And sometimes the prophet is going to be now employed and used in such a way that shows people this is halal and this is haram, no matter what the community says or what society says. And for that, the prophets were responsible to fulfill their covenants first, and then the believers are responsible to fulfill their covenants with the prophets, and from those who did not fulfill their covenants, there are two groups. One is the munafiqun, those who claim to be believers, but they were not. And those who did not claim to be believers, they remained on their faith, like the Jews, but they did not fulfill their covenant. And then the other group that did fulfill its covenant, the Banu Qaynuqa, they were not touched. They were not approached by the Prophet uh, even though they were there. So we see that it's all about honoring the covenant first with Allah, then honoring the covenant with the Prophet ﷺ, because the Prophet, as this surah says, is closer to you than your own selves. That the Nabi is closer to the believers than they are to themselves. So the Nabi has priority over the believers, meaning that their mindset and their psyche and their worldview has been lined with the uh, worldview of the Prophet ﷺ. This is what is meant by following the Prophet ﷺ intellectually and also ideologically, theoretically and mentally. This is the introduction to the surah. The rest of the surah gives examples for the believers how they must still be in line with the covenant with the Prophet So we say Jazakallah khair for everybody who has attended these sessions this year. And uh, we have one or two announcements I think from our board member here, Rafi. MashaAllah.